Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the fine folks at Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia, from which all of these panels were recorded at Metatopia 2017. It's also thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 180, Capture the Heart. Designing Emotionally Evocative Games Presented by Kurt Copert Alright, well Um, I guess we can get started So, uh I don't know I'm hoping, I'm hoping other people show up Um, so this is kind of an, uh, an odd panel that I set up And it's, um it's kind of connected a little bit to a panel that uh, Roberta and I did a little bit earlier today. Um, was anyone in that one? No, great. Um, the panel earlier was about uh, trying to infuse a, a narrative into your game design to more fully engage players in the flow of the, the game so they get caught up in, in the theme and in the content um, so it feels less like a pasted-on theme, but more like an experience at the table. Um, this is somewhat connected to that, um, but it's, uh, it's specifically trying to talk about um, the power of emotion that gets woven into your, uh, your game mechanics. And um, actually, you know what? Maybe we should... Swing that closed. It's, it's a little bit noisy back there. Uh, the, the the back back door. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, so the, the the power of infusing emotion into your into your game, um, and also uh, some games that do it well. Um, ways that you can think about, you know, what are some of the levers you can use to to create more emotional gameplay and um, what that, in the end, means to your game. Um, so anyway, uh, if you don't know me, I'm Kurt Covert. I'm the owner of Smirk and Dagger Games. Um, I'm also, um, I'm going to be launching next year a sub-brand. Uh, for 14 years, I've done nothing but backstabbing games where it causes you to clench your teeth, shake your fist, and, you know, curse your neighbor. Smirk and Laughter is going to come in and feature all emotionally centered games, but without all the nasty backstabbing. So it allows me a whole new range to play in. And Roberta, I'll let you introduce yourself. Um, I'm Roberta Taylor. I'm a board game designer. Um, I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, and Kurt asked me to be in this panel four hours ago. And right. I'm excited because it's just awesome. so I wasn't it wasn't just me up here with because <laughs> my favorite board game experiences are the ones that you retell later like you were reading a story or watching a movie and you can't do that without emotional connection you can't do that without being invested in that in some kind of a way so yeah so um, I guess the first thing um, let me just, by, by kind of show of hands, um, when you guys read the description for this panel, uh, I was talking about like kind of fi- finding the heart of the game, infusing more emotion, is uh, how many people kind of feel like they are doing that and they're like, yeah, that's awesome already. Okay. And, you know, and I, some were like this, so it's like, you know, you're just kind of looking for like other ways to do it maybe you didn't think of or... Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so, there are a lot of ways to go about game design, and some are very mechanical, some are very mathematical, um, some are very theme-based, and when we get into theme and then the narrative of, narrative of the game, the experience at the table, that is, is really where I think a lot of 
rich gaming exist. Not that chess isn't a really engrossing game. Um, you know, abstract games are are wonderful. That they are mental challenges. They are puzzles. They are like a force of will, and that has its own emotional power. Um, I've, I've certainly sat across from you know chess players, and like their sweat is pouring, and they're like, "Oh my god, I hope they don't see this move." Totally get all that. But what we're talking about here are some other levels, uh, other levels of gaming that connect to the story and theme, and you are specifically building for an emotional reaction. And the reason that that's important to do in games is because the best games that are thematic games are ones that are memorable because they impacted you in that moment. We're, we're all very human creatures and our emotions are what drive a lot of our, our passions and interest. So if you can get us excited, if you can get us tormented, if you can, um, you know, you know, do the sad puppy dog eyes, you know, and any kind of emotional reaction creates an experience at the table that you all share and then want to recreate with other people. And, you know, as alpha gamers even, you know, that's why we like to share games. We're like, oh, this was such a cool experience. I got to show this to all my friends because we're going to have that same kind of cool experience. Um, so often that is actually tied, whether you think about it or not in these terms, to really well executed emotional triggers, whether they be reward systems or um, sometimes punishment systems. Um, but uh, I don't know if you want to jump in at a... Uh, oh, no? All right. I was just... I'm good. Okay. So, <laughs> my, I, I will say to you, when you got something, say, shh, give me... <laughs> um, so, a couple, couple examples of, of what I'm talking about. Um, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm really well-versed in uh, backstabbery. Um, one of the reasons that I happen to love uh, exploring that whole uh, genre and why I planted my flag 14 years ago and stood for it was because, first of all, you're making a social contract when you sit down to play one of those games. And as long as you set the expectation when you sit down and people know it's coming, it's expected, and you're expected to return in, in kind, now it opens up the ability for people to have good-hearted, poke-in-the-eye moments where they can delight in the plan and see it forming and happening, the reward of actually getting it done, see them like, ugh, cringe at the thing, which is also kind of rewarding, and at the other side of the table, because there's, oh, there's more than one person at the table, right? On the other side, you've got someone who is like emotionally impacted, like, I can't believe, why did you do that? Especially it's like, a, like this turnaround betrayal. You're like, oh, we could have been working together. Yeah, but I am actually going to be better, better for me this way. You know, all of that kind of stuff um, is what creates the drama, the tension, the metagame after or even during, and the enduring memories of the game that they're going to talk about afterwards. Um, I just think it's funny to, uh, to see <laughs> people act out in games. Because once you form that social contract, mm -hmm. it's just a game. I'm, it's, people will say this to me all the time. I am like one of the nicest guys walking around on the planet. But I create these games that are just horrible and, and encourage people to do terrible things to each other. Why? Because there's an emotional outlet, there's a catharsis, there's, you know, we don't get to be jerks and feel good about it normally, hopefully, <laughs> but sometimes it's kind of fun to see that play out, and um, because it's a, you know, we've established, yeah, that's what this game is about, we can have that experience in the safety of, you know, a, a, a board game. Well, and it's interesting, because if you, if you have a board game where you have seven options and one of them is mean, you, you get this often, this dynamic where no one will take that option. Yeah. Because they don't want to be that guy, that person that, that's, that was the first one to pick the mean option. Um, but if, if 
it, someone will finally do it, then it's like, okay, it's okay. It opens the door. But I, I find it really fascinating how if you don't make that permission explicit enough, people will really hesitate to take that option. So, yeah. Yeah. The, this idea of a social contract, I think, is important. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of that is always setting expectations in your game. When, you're, when your players sit down, they really need to know very quickly what you've built, what they're in for, what they can expect from the game. Um, a lot of that is your pitch. It's your one-liner, your two-liners that, you know, uh, I guess set up the idea of what the hardcore of the game is. Cutthroat Caverns, which is probably my nastiest game, um, says it like right on the cover. Without teamwork, you'll never survive. Without betrayal, you'll never win. Okay. I get it. Gotta work together only so far, and there's gonna be lots of this all around the table. Now we all know, and we can get right to business. And I was just talking about uh, this earlier, the difference with something like that, where you really kind of set that, that contract up, it's also, some of those levers are like, how much investment you have. Backstabbing games in, in, you know, tend to be very short, otherwise you get to really, really hard feelings. Uh, you know, talk about um, what were we talking about? Diplomacy. 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 You play for hours and hours, and you've been building this, you know, alliance, and you're working together. And all of a sudden, at the very end, they jab you right in the back, and you're ready to kill somebody. Is that fun? For some people, it is. To me, I don't want to spend all that time invested in that to get that result, but. But I, I think it's a really interesting area to explore in the human experience. And people will, t people who uh, have a little thicker skin, who, who like that type of engagement, because it's polarizing, not everyone loves those types of games. But for those who do, it's a really interesting area to explore and, um, <laughs> and kind of manipulate those emotions. You know, uh, Cutthroat Caverns is all about enticing you with something very good for you at the expense of yourself and all the other players. And there are so many different ways that that happens to tempt you. And watching the table decide, am I going to be a good party member? Or is this my time to really mess with people? Yes, it is. <laughs> so, um, but there's a, a lot of other emotions too. Um, so, how do you build for delivering uh, emotional gameplay? A lot of it, like we were talking about earlier today, is tied to your theme, your, the, the narrative, the story of, not like the, the script of the game or the, you know, the, the, what's on the back of the box, but the experience. What is the experience you want people to have at the table? What is your game really about in human terms, and then how do you create behavioral funnels that lead people to those experiences consistently throughout the game? And it's that consistency that you're setting up that really makes the game a mechanical delivery system for that experience. Um, another great uh, example comes from um, a game that I'm going to be launching next year. Um, it is a um, very unusual for me. It is. An, hello, welcome. Come on in. I'm looking for a sweatshirt. I think I left here. Well, come on in either way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in any case, uh, this, the the game that I'm going to introduce next year is very different for me. It is a almost zen-like storytelling game. Um, it is really emotionally satisfying to play. Now, typically, I don't like storytelling games for, for a couple reasons. One, most of them allow or encourage people to interrupt your story and change the narrative, which is an interesting exercise, but it doesn't give you ownership to the story. And owning a story is an emotional, uh, it's a rich emotional area. You are creating something and you're putting it out there. And uh, as you spend more time doing it and building it, you become more and more emotionally invested in it. You want to see it really succeed. 
Um, the other thing that I really liked about this game was that it um, it's about creation myths. Um, you are an ancient lore giver looking up into the heavens and the constellations and pulling down keywords from the stars to inspire your creation myths. Um, now, interestingly enough, that type of story is so ingrained in us as humans that it becomes easy, even for people who are not, you know, themselves great storytellers, there's enough of that type of story in all of our, in any culture in the world, that you're like, I think I know how I can build that. Um, and the ingenuity that people have when in a moment's notice they've got to put all those things together and reconnect them over time to create a narrative is kind of cool. Now this game actually also featured um, scoring that is hidden until the end. So people are reacting to your story, they're scoring your story, but you as a player don't know how they've really reacted unless they've shown you physically, like they smiled or they laughed or the whatever. Um, it also means that, yes, you're not, you're not really playing to an audience. A lot of storytelling games, whoever tells the best joke is gonna win, right? Also, not just the only way you can play a storytelling game. So, um, this game scores not by who's the best storyteller or who told the best story. It's about, in that round, what moment of someone's story really, really got you interested. That levels the playing field. So all of a sudden now, I'm not worried about how great a storyteller I am because I know I'm getting recognized for like this little piece of my story. And what I decided at the end of this design, and this is kind of what I was building towards, um, I recognized that I love the power of secret scoring, but I was missing an opportunity because Stories are about sharing and appreciation. And the appreciation was what was going to make this game feel so good at the end. And it's not a matter of dumping out and see who, was the, who had the highest score. Quite honestly, half the time people don't score it at all. Or don't share their scores, because it doesn't matter. It was, it was just such a great experience. But what I built was an appreciation round. One bonus point is all that's up for contention here and what you do is after everyone is done with their stories before you look at your score you say um, well listen I really I really liked that piece of the story that you told where uh, the goddess cried and filled the oceans that was beautiful imagery uh, but your story those two gods that shared the eyeball back and forth that was it was so I could just watch them I could I could imagine like the, the fight they would have constantly. So that was really cool, but I tell you what, this appreciation point is going to you, sir, because when you had uh, the in the beginning and uh, you had the, the book and the, the valley, I was like, how are you gonna put those together? And the all goddess poured all her knowledge into a tome and opened it and unfurled a valley where she grew her progeny. It was, I, my point, that bonus point goes to you. It doesn't really impact the scoring. What it does is it delivers an emotional response. It gives you the satisfaction of not caring about the score because everyone is now going around and sharing what they appreciated and loved about everyone's story. And that's why you would play a game like this at all, is for the fun of doing it and the appreciation that people liked what you did. So, um, so that was just like one example of, you know, where I saw an opportunity to really connect on a deeper emotional level, understanding kind of what humans are looking for in these game experiences. Um, does anyone have like a game that you think does something like that pretty well? Yeah. Yeah, some kind of mechanic that evokes emotion. If not, I got a couple more, but. Yeah. Um, the card game by Atlas. It's um, that storytelling game where you 
Oh, once upon a time, is it? Yeah, yeah. I think at very least you get a sense of wonder and awe out of it. Yes. When everything starts connecting, and especially if you're playing as a cooperative storytelling game. Yeah. Area of Dracula. Whenever Dracula makes a move, he does so secretly, but in front of you and places his cards in a pattern, and all the players, it's he's up to no good. Right. And it evokes that every time. And what does that mean to the gameplay? What has that instilled in all the players in terms of like a narrative and experience? It instills the, the you know the players who like really want to work together in the game. So, so it turns them against. Right. So it really binds people together against a a, an, a, a lurking enemy. Yeah. Exactly. That's a great example. Yeah. Um, uh, I told uh, a story about uh, uh, Gary Kagan. Uh, he, he designed a game which uh, we published this year. Uh, it was called Paramedics Clear. Um, familiar? Yes? No? Okay. Uh, Paramedics is a game where you are racing against the clock to save as many lives as you can, and you probably can't save them all. Interestingly enough, when he designed this game, he designed it as a hand management euro. And it was very clean, it was very mathematical, it was very balanced. Um, but it lacked, it lacked emotion. Um, the simple addition of a small mechanic took his game from this to this, and that was he added a timer. It was a 60-second timer, and by the way, it's going to whittle down to 45 seconds and then 30 seconds before you're done with the game. And trying to manage all the things that you could have done as you're sitting back for five minutes, and now you have 60 seconds or 30 seconds to do it, your heart is racing. And because you know if you fail, someone is going to die. Obviously, no one's going to really die, but you haven't... You're now invested in the game. You're invested in the story and the narrative. And part of you really believes that you cannot let those guys go. And that, that narrative, that uh, emotional response just from a timer and the pressure of that is driving that game to new heights. Um, it's, uh, it's a game that um, has been loosely titled Heart Attack in a Box. Uh, it does that extremely well. Um, and uh, uh, EMTs and, and uh, uh, ER surgery docs have all commented. Uh, it could have gone either way. They could have hated it. But happily, they're like really enjoying it. Uh, I was doing a demo at Gen Con across from a, a reviewer and uh, kind of playing more towards him because he's you know, going to be writing about it. And the guy this side uh, is like, hey, listen, I just got to tell you, this, I'm an ER doc. This game, the, the components, this timer with the EKG like blipping like this all the way through your turn and, and then it gets to seven seconds, it gets ready, and then it codes, you know, if you don't save them. I mean, all of that is just, it's amazing. I need two copies. <laughs> so um, so the, the power of that, the, the experience that people have at the table is only going to be heightened by the emotional investment and reaction and impact that the game has with them. Um, quite honestly, that could be just as simple as like those flinch grabby games, uh, party style games that thrive on the fun, the emotion of the uh, unexpected, uh, you know, all of those kind of things. Any, any way that you can think of that like sucks people in and gets them energized or, you know, sad or angry, any time you can engage the emotions, your game takes it to a new level. This is why my kids played Pandemic seven times in a row until 12.30 one night, because they had to beat it, thank you very much. Right. Because they had decided that as a group they could do this, and so they got invested in, in, in yeah, I mean, it was an emotional. When they finally beat it, you could hear the cheers for forever, right? right. Because this, they were going to do this, thank you very much. Yeah, so it, it binds people together, then by coming out of that experience, pride, right? This was super hard, we nailed it. And that's an emotional reward, especially you know, over time that 
you just can't deny. Uh, so a lot of the games that have those kind of successes, it's because they have reached deeper in someone. Um, what are some of the other mechanics that uh, that are good for that? Push your luck uh, mm -hmm. is another is another great one to add tension and mm -hmm. uh, uh, you kind of sit on the edge of your seat and you because you usually feel really invested. Yeah, in whatever it is you're risking to do that. Right, and, so and it keeps on climbing. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> the deeper you go, the more risk, the more reward. But man, the defeat of when it crashes. The board game Lords of Vegas mm. is that with the dice and the city and there's a lot of push your luck in that and yeah. I remember the first time I played it everyone's gather on the box watching all the rolls because you know did you just lose everything or did you just win the game because you, you put everything on the line yeah. and, and those are always really memorable mo moments when you're yeah uh, oh what was that RPG there was a great RPG um, that that had uh, they used a Jenga tower Dread. Brilliant, right? Because the tension of Jenga it already exists. And to create that kind of physical connection and weave it into the narrative of a game, wow, that's how you spike an emotion and get people really nervous around the table when it's supposed to be you're like on pins and needles in this horrific world, right? How can you engage natural emotions, natural reactions, uh, and infuse them with things that are associated, you know, mechanics in, in, in gameplay. So it's... Um... And I think it's a lot, maybe not easier, but I can think of way more examples of what you would consider generally negative emotions. Yeah. You know, you can add tension, you can whatever, but to try to put in something, like when you talk about that zen calm, yeah. or, you know, joy, how do you those things in a game I, I don't think it's impossible but no I, I think that when when you can use tension as a tool we're used to doing that right with we want someone to win and, and whatever yeah. you have to get a lot more creative to fit some of those other things in there in an intentional way yeah well and it's interesting to that's actually a, a really interesting point um, you shouldn't ever think about emotional responses, emotional gameplay, emotional mechanics without realizing that emotions exist on a spectrum, right? You can't have, um, you can't have a negative emotion without the counterbalance of the positive. That's what gives each side its power. Uh, and frequently it's the interplay of the two that really creates an interesting uh, dynamic situation. It's the weighting of, um, you know, oh, here, great, great example. So uh, um, a game about um, rescuing dogs from a shelter, right? People, like, ah, oh, dogs, rescuing dogs, that's adorable, I love that. Cool, come and play it. So you start playing this game and you're caring for dogs and you're feeding dogs and you're putting them up for adoption, trying to find the perfect matching family for that forever home and so now they don't get adopted. Well, they get a little broken heart token. <laughs> and as those broken hearts accumulate, at some point, maybe that dog leaves the shelter. Now this happens obviously in real life. There's a real pathos and a real reality to that situation people understand all too well. Interestingly enough, um, while that creates a real sense of, you know, and sometimes when you first hear that, you're like, horror, like, well, what are we playing, right? But the, the positive side, now you've got that fear. The positive side is as all those hearts accumulate, that dog becomes more valuable to rescue. Each, each of those hearts is now worth extra bonus points maybe. So that when you do save that animal, not only you're like, oh my God, I saved the animal, but there's also a mechanic that rewards you in gameplay terms as well. So you are, you've got both types of rewards coming to you and now you're taking the, the focus off of what's the negative side and really making sure people understand the positive benefit 
this is why we're here, guys. And yes, there's a danger, but this is what we're focused on, saving dogs. So there's always a balance of these emotions, and it's the interplay that makes really compelling gameplay. Um, man, I'm thinking about some other stuff. Um, other mechanics that really do a nice job of it. Mm -mm. I'm not sure what emotion you get, but you get a lot of reactions whenever you have bluffing involved. Oh, bluffing is a great one. Because, well, you're essentially lying. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and that's not something that most of us, you know, think of ourselves as being good at. You don't want to say, I'm a really good liar. <laughs> <laughs> Though we're gamers, so we know. <laughs> but that, you know... When you when you pull off that really good bluff, yeah, that's like that's really awesome. And when someone bluffs you, you're like, no, like how did I not see that? Like yeah. you have a lot of that type of, um, and you're, it's, I find any bluffing game I've ever played, I'm very invested in in trying to figure out what's going on and paying attention, even yeah. though I'm horrible at them. Only invite them me to play if you want to win. Yeah, um, but and and often bluffing games, whether they they think about it in these terms or not, it's almost you'll almost always see people bring in role-playing aspects to bluffing. Um, they'll take on a role or a persona to help them detach themselves from their regular self to give them the, the ability to, to bluff and lie better because a character is going to do better than they can. So, um, but, you know, even if it's just like kind of like a, a, a facade, like, you know, can't read me because I'm not even human, man. So, um, but there is a, there's a tension in, in, in trying to figure out what people are, are up to and read their eyes and features. Um, and again, what do we do as humans? When we are in a relationship, we are looking at visual cues all the time. We're looking at faces and body language and everything else. And oftentimes we don't process it here, we feel it here um, because it's it's part of the human condition to like you know that's how we interact bluffing allows you to like really focus on it unabashedly um and uh it, it creates a new way to play and i think that's why bluffing games are so fun because it lets you explore this area of of what humans do when they interact yeah Kind of like just family style Scrabble, like you're just kind of like flipping them over on a Sunday. Practically a co-op. Yeah. Then you have the other side of it where it is obscenely tense. Yeah. Every moment is, and I swear to God, if it's an eye next to that cue, I'll punch him. Yeah. So I'm curious what your thoughts are in that space. Like, should that be something to aim for? Something that can be both of those? Or do you aim for the one and just be happily surprised if the other shows up? Um, so the answer is it's your design intent. Um, both are absolutely uh, valid 
ways to have a game. You know, the, the, the very broad, happy family game kind of thing, it, there's nothing wrong with it at all. People love them. Um, if you're looking for something that feels more competitive, that is the experience that you want to deliver, then you find ways to, um, to set the expectation. And incentivize it. Incentivize it and, and keep the funnel pouring towards getting that consistently. Um, now, in your example with Scrabble, sometimes it's just what the players came to the table with, what kind of person they are, and what kind of experience they're looking for. So they'll infuse themselves into that moment and, and add things that aren't necessarily part of the game per se. Um, Abstracts leave a lot more room for bringing your own self to the game. Yeah. I think when you've got that theme and you've already got a story the designer's built in, there's a little more ability to, to focus the experience. Yes. Um, but, again, if you set the expectation that this is a highly competitive game and, um, you know, you're... Now I want to teach Scrabble like it's cutthroat. Yeah. With the assumption right out of the box that this is how this is going to be. And, and you can <laughs> do it probably with just like creating like two quick hook sentences that set up the, 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 the expectation like, oh, that's how we're going. All right. <laughs> um, and the players then sit down and play the game that you just told them they're about to play because you set the expectation. And now if you have certain mechanics, they're going to help them remind them and give them opportunities to have the experience that you're trying to set, then yes, that's the thing. But it is, I think, the designer's responsibility to decide what is the experience they want their game to deliver. And once you really have that, and it's a focused idea, um, and very often, uh, I, I, look, I look for uh, peaks and valleys. It's very hard to keep anything like this. Dead Last may be an example of one that kind of does, but um, uh, but I think it's it's most rewarding when you've got a natural flow and curve because that's kind of what people are used to in in general. Otherwise, you just you have a high high tension all the way through your game, um, and you do that by designing what the rewards are in the game and what the challenges are in the game. And if you want there to be, you know, player versus player, then, you know, how are you incentivizing them? What are they getting out of it? How are you theming that so that they feel in the moment when they're doing it? Um, I think, I, I think we, last session we talked about, like, sometimes when you play, like, a, a, a licensed game, whether it's, you know, uh, Buffy or Star Trek or whatever you, you like, you know, you can tell when a theme has been pasted onto a product, and it's like, oh, they designed a dice game and they put this picture on it, and it feels nothing like what you'd expect because you have a level of expectation of what that should be playing like. Mm -hmm. You want to come and play and be in that movie, that book, whatever. So when you are building mechanics for a game even of your own universe you are looking for mechanics that deliver an experience that you want to involve them in so that they feel your intent they experience the game you want them to play um and they really theme theme and mechanics are so so tight uh when they when they work well um and they feed off each other And there are a lot, of, a lot of different triggers that you can, that you can employ to, to get those reactions. And quite honestly, I am a designer that um, very seldom maths things out. I gut check my games. When, I'm, when I've got a prototype, when I'm sitting and I'm playing with a group of people, I will get to the balance things. I will get to the math pieces but right now, when I'm doing my beta, I'm looking at the reactions. I'm seeing what things are causing people to have the reactions I'm hoping for. Mm -hmm. I really want them to, to be, oh my goodness, really? Or, you know, uh, uh, or, you know, oh, I could do this? Oh my God, I love that. 
whatever those reactions are, mm -hmm. I'm looking for those high and low moments. I, that's what I want. Every time I have a group sit down and play, I, I know I want this and this. And I'll see it develop. And anything that helps get me there, that I can design a mechanic for, or anything that gets in the way, I strip away. Because in the end, you are curating an experience. And sometimes mechanics can get in the way. You can get so focused on, well, I want it to do so much. Pare down. Find the heart of the game. Yeah. And that makes that presupposition that you know what experience you want the players to have. And I've run into lots of designers who've never thought about it. Oh, so I want to make a I want to make a game about zombies. Yeah, but what kind of a game? Like, you know, how do the players feel? What what kind of story you're telling? Who's playing this game? Who showed up? How do you want them to And and lots of times it especially newer designers, but I think anyone can make that mistake, we forget. We get so involved in the details of our design, we forget that we're creating this experience and that it would really help us if we knew what that was supposed to be in the back of our head, because then we have a goal to head towards. And, and, and so if you, if you have a game you're struggling with, write down those details. Write down what, what you want this to look like when people are playing it, what experiences and and all those things, because that can often be the thing that lets you know, oh, well then of course, I need to take this out and make this more important, or whatever, yeah. to get to that, that, that place where you're getting those emotions and that involvement that you want. So, and, and this leads uh, right into something we were talking about right after our last session. We were talking with a designer out in the hall who loves Vikings, and he wanted to create this Viking game, but he's got kind of a problem. He's like, ah, you know, it works and I like it and it, it's it's interesting, but it, it's lacking like a little something. So I wanted to hear like how you think we could we could add more oomph to it. I was like, well, so let me ask you a question. What about Vikings? When you when you think of Vikings and you wanted to have an experience about Vikings, what do you think about? What's co so cool about Vikings? And he's like, oh, it's it's like the epic quests and slaying the big monster and it's like you know you're all getting together and, and, and conquering it's like cool that's awesome so now tell me a little about your game and it was like three or four decades of kingdom building I was like so the thing that you really are excited about Vikings is really hidden and outside of the mechanics you've got a really great political intrigue game which is perfectly cool if that's the experience you want to deliver. But if you are looking for something that leads to, you know, let us go and smite together, you've got the mechanics are now getting in your way if that's the spirit of the game you're looking for. So to your zombie example, yeah, how many zombie tales have we seen? And each one has something that they do a little different, you know, whether it be movies or books or, or, or games. So um, really focus down and decide what is the perfect game experience. What are you looking for this game to feel like? And, and, and you know, it's got to be crunchy and interesting. Like, what do you love about the idea of the game? And then make everything, uh, everything focus on delivering that and getting rid of anything else that gets in the way. Yeah. Um, anyone else have any other questions? Yeah. Um, so, because of the type of work I do um, and the kids I work with, I'm looking for games that will not just create that kind of emotional connection. Um, because a lot of times what I'm seeing is, is a sense of catharsis, and that's what um, players are looking for. Mm -hmm. But if a child, like in my case, yeah. And understanding emotions is, is, is the problem. Yeah. And so trying to create games or work towards the idea of not just a sense of catharsis, but connecting to the other person, even though you don't understand your own sometimes. Right. So uh, I understand this area uh, pretty well. My, my wife is a family therapist, and she works with that population as well. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, I don't know that I have necessarily a great 
idea recommendation for you um, but what I would say is if you are very close to that population and that is an important thing that you were trying to build it's trust your gut with that and try a few things and see what the reactions are see where the successes are see what the hurdles are as you as you do it you are going to feel your way through that because um, now again with that population it's it's it can be very different because there are many different you know spectrum cases so uh, it may work great with one person and not another well that's true of any game anyway but in particular with that that's you know i think a different situation um but let your let your intuition let your experience be your guide um let the whatever the game experience is what it's ever it's, it's trying to teach or encourage in terms of of reaction um let let the, the the process of that kind of just flow first out of you and then gauge the reaction you're getting um, and modulate from there yep. there's lots of opportunities for shared joy or shared frustration or, yeah or shared triumph and i think that that that's probably the type of things that you're you're looking to find and amplify yeah uh or even the recognition of you know uh so, I mean, we, we think about, you know, uh, we were talking about bluffing games or hidden traders or different things like that. Well, in, in the hobby game world, that's one thing. But being able to recognize hidden things, emotions that I can't quite recognize, if there are ways that I'm trying to figure those things out, but it's analogous to things that we already do in other games, that might be an opportunity. So if you can look for cognates, maybe you can find a pathway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so when, um, I know uh, when, when you're designing a game, uh, do you find, say you want to infuse emotion into the game, do you find it's easier to start with that emotion and then build your game around the emotion or to start with your theme uh, I personally always start with a theme, and and by theme, um, let me take it a little deeper because it's it's not like oh it's going to be zombies, it's going to be dogs. That's not a theme. The theme, the narrative of the, of the game, is where I start. What is the experience at the table that that mm -hmm. starts to come out as? Um, if if I know I want a game about uh, uh, pirates, even right, um, I could I could make a swashbuckling game. I could make a game about uh, raiding pirate ships. But if I want to talk about like cutthroat pirates and pawning off poison treasure while I'm collecting the loot and stealing from other players. There's a different experience than in, in all of those games. And the, the emotions that are going to come from that flow right out of the narrative I want to tell. Um, think about any game in human terms. When you think about the experience of play, what are the things that you think are going to be the most interesting, the most rewarding, because they connect to something true and interesting and in, in why I like pirates? Um, uh, it's really important to deliver on people's expectation. If they play a pirate game and it's wildly outside, one, you're going to have to let them know that this is a very different take on pirates. But that's okay to do that so long as now you're creating what that new experience is and letting people know that's what's coming. Um, now it's like there's a, a kind of a, a joy of discovery and figuring out well, what is this take on pirates why are there kittens why yeah <laughs> um, why are there it's a good question <laughs> um, so no theme theme for me is first that is almost always gets me right to the experience and the experience naturally is connected to an emotion um, and then it's the mechanics that are going to help me get there um, I love dramatic tension. Um, I, I love p 
pitting uh, different sides of the emotional coin against each other. Um, I love uh, rewarding for what ends up being an emotional part of the story of the game. Um, in Dead Last, since we talked about Dead Last, um, one of the biggest emotional points of Dead Last is when it gets down to the last two players and you've got the, the classic uh, prisoner's dilemma, right? It's, a, it's such a simple mechanic. Like, all right, if we both share, we both share half the treasure. Awesome. If one steals, they get everything. If both steal, we get nothing and everyone else at the table gets something. Or if I really don't think you're going to do anything with me, I'm just going to grab one and go. You have the other three. At least I'm safe. It's such a simple dynamic, but it drives people crazy because all of a sudden you set up expectations. All right, listen. You Remember, you have to go home with me tonight, right? <laughs> I'm driving you home, so this better be a share. <laughs> Look at me. This better be a share. Right? We're on the same page. You know it's not going to be a share, right? Flip. You stole from me? What the hell? <laughs> yes. It is supercharged because there is this expectation. There's a storytelling. There is an experience that no one wants to be duped, right? And this is the simplest dupe in the book. But... It's just as powerful. It works every time because that's our human experience, you know? So um, find, find those levers that you apply from real life, small, simple mechanics, timers and push your luck and bluffing. All these things have emotional responses um, and all those tie in very inventive ways on how you merge them all together to get emotional responses. And it's the, the reward and the punishment and everything else is all part of that. So anyway, I think our time is just about up. I thank you very much for stopping by. Yes, I hope you. it was helpful for you guys. So yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. You bet. <laughs>